Let me invite you to stand for our scripture reading. It's found in Isaiah chapter 3. So Isaiah 3, which is definitely flyover country in Isaiah, however, uh, what truths are here for us? And I'll read Isaiah 3, beginning in verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 1. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantily with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike them with a scab, the the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves. The headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets. The signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags. The mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty, your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground, and seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to this text, we pray indeed you would sanctify us, you would work in our heart, that we would hear the truth you have for us, that your spirit would lead and guide us as a church to live in ways that give you glory and honor you. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. One of my sons has as a hobby blacksmithing, making knives. And one of the things that I watched him do one time, he had a crucible and he would put aluminum cans in this crucible, heat it up, and you would see the aluminum can melting, smoking, being smelted down into pure aluminum. And the dross, you know, all that nasty stuff that's killing us, whatever that liner of the can is, the paint, All that on these aluminum cans would burn off and he'd be left with pure aluminum and then he would pour it into his mom's muffin uh, tin, which he had permission, was donated for this purpose, and make these aluminum ingots. And likewise, God has a process in your life and in my life of smelting us down, of burning the dross off, whatever doesn't belong in your character, in your Christian character, in your heart, deep down in your desires, God will burn it off. Uh, That's good news, but oh, the burning. It can be painful, can't it? It can be painful. Look back now at Isaiah 1, 25, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 25, this is what we read of this process of God putting us into the crucible, into the refiner's fire. This is what's said. I will turn my hand, this is Isaiah 1, 25, I will turn my hand against you 
and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. God will burn off your dross. We call this sanctification. It's the process where God knocks not just our edges off, but very much assaults our character with the heat of his will and his providence to burn off that which doesn't belong. Sanctification is the process where you and I are made more and more after the image of God, where our character is formed. How does this happen except he turns the heat up in our life and he makes us more dependent upon him? But there is something which stops this process. There is something which hampers this process. There is something which cools the refiner's fire and that heat. Namely, it is our pride. It is our pride. We've covered pride before in Isaiah. And you see pride brought up, look in chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 17. Haughtiness, pride is something which stops our growth with God. Now, we've talked about pride before, namely that pride is pernicious because it is obvious to everyone else except the prideful person. And we like to say, oh, pride? Yeah, that's somebody else, not me. Pride is really, it's defined this way because we like to define our terms around here. If you think about pride, pride, one of the best definitions I've seen of it is in David Wells' book, The Courage to be Protestant, which is a great reformational book to read, The Courage to be Protestant. And in that book, he defines pride this way. Pride is putting yourself in the place of God. And he says pride is thinking much about the self and much of the self. And let me tell you this straight up. We think a lot about ourselves. And we think much of ourselves. And God has something to say about that. Because you see, our pride would cool the refiner's fire, as it were. Our pride would say, we don't need help. We don't need improvement. Our pride focuses us to make much of ourselves when we should be making much of God. And so God assaults pride. Pride cannot stop the progress of God's refining fire. It's just a matter of how soon we will let go of our pride and how much pain God would have us endure towards uh, experiencing humility. And so how does God deal with our pride? That's something you see here in this passage. He's going to address Israel's pride, and in particular, the pride that the daughters of Zion have. You look in verse 16. Now, let's focus on our passage here. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, they're prideful, they walk with outstretched necks. I don't want to demonstrate that. I don't want to pull anything this, this morning, but you kind, of, you kind of get that image here they are walking with outstretched necks. They're glancing wantily with their eyes. There's some lust 
involved here at various things that they want and how they want to satisfy their desires. They're mincing along as they go. Mincing is, again, I don't want to pull anything, but, you know, taking these sort of dainty steps, tinkling with their feet. Maybe they have bells on their feet. I kind of imagine, I know it's anachronistic and irresponsible biblical interpretation, but let's do it anyway. It's sort of like your favorite English period piece on TV, and there they are with the white gloves and the parasols, and they're, they're strolling along, you know, through the park or, or some place like that. That's kind of what the image is here. Now, we've heard about the daughters of Zion previously. That was in chapter 1, verse 8. And we return to this topic of the daughters of Zion because you can, it's almost like a dipstick or an indicator, a diagnostic indicator on how a society is doing based on how the women are doing. And so this subset is the focus here and their pride. And so what does God do in the face of their, their pride, their mincing along, their outstretched necks? How is he going to sanctify them, refine them? It's aggressive. Verse 17, he is going to strike and lay bare. Look in verse 17. How does God deal with our pride? Look, verse 17 begins with, therefore. So it's because of the pride, the haughtiness, he's going to respond this way. He will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. So you kind of imagine the head is very prominent it's a place of pride, and in that location, God's going to bring about a scab uh, on the heads of the daughters of Zion. And then what will he do? Verse 17, the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. He will bring disgrace upon them. He will lay them bare. He, the, he will expose them. Now, this may be looking forward, as it were, pointing to the eventual demise of the southern kingdom of Israel with the exile and how women would be taken advantage of once an enemy army had come in. So God is going to strike them. He is going to lay them bare. He is targeting them for one reason only, their pride. Their pride. And here's the thing. Some would say, Oh, my God wouldn't do that. My God wouldn't do anything like that. I want to tell you that God does and he will come against our pride with force. Striking and laying bare is forceful language. And God will come that way against us because pride gets in the way of what he is trying to do in our life, which is to humble us and make us more dependent upon him. Whenever you hear, my God wouldn't do that, you need to check that against scripture. Because here God is knocking people down as he did to the apostle Paul, when, or uh, Saul, when he confronted him prior to his conversion. And Jesus told Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was a violent encounter. And likewise, God will strike and lay bare 
to us when we are prideful. It's part of his love and his grace. He will not let the sinful parts of us stop the progress of sanctification in our life and what he wants to accomplish. Now, we might think in the face of someone saying, my God wouldn't do that, first and foremost, we need to admit they deserve it, and so do we. They deserve it. Why? Because look in verse 16. This is their behavior. So the first thing is they deserve it. Second thing is God has a right to do it. He is a holy God. He can have nothing to do with sin. And so he has a right to occupy the high and lofty place that he does, and his creatures have nothing to say about it. So they deserve it. God has a right to do it. But we should know love is the motivation. God will not let us go. If we have placed our life and our faith in Christ, if we have come to Him as our Lord and Savior, when we are prideful, God will not let it continue as an act of His love and His grace. It is painful at times, but He must remove aspects, sinful aspects of our character and our pride for His own glory. You know, the job that I should have had instead of being a pastor, is to be a dermatologist in South Texas. That is guaranteed job security, isn't it? Guaranteed job security because it's so sunny here, and people damage their skin. And the interface of the damaging of the skin and the vanity of people who live here intersects on being a dermatologist. And what does a dermatologist do? You go visit them. They burn off what doesn't belong. They cut off what doesn't belong. Why are they doing this? Well, they don't want you to die from cancer. It's painful, isn't it? It's painful. But they do it for your good likewise. God cuts off the parts that don't belong to us. It is painful. It hurts but the alternative is deadly. Pride is deadly and will kill our very souls. So the first thing you need to know, pride. God comes against it. How does he come against it? We see he strikes and he lays bare. There's another way here that God comes against our pride and the daughters of Zion's pride. It's here in verse 18. What does he do? takes away the finery, takes away the finery. And the finery is listed there. I mean, there's quite a list here of things that people depend on, people put their faith in. You can kind of think about in the ancient world, there wasn't a, a consistent banking system, not that there is today, but they would carry around their wealth in the form of jewelry. And perhaps people still do that today in certain countries where you can't depend on banks. And you see all the finery that they have. Now, some of this that is listed here for us uh, may indicate being influenced by the pagan cultures around them. Well, what do I mean by that? If you look at the end of verse 18, you see crescents. So this could have been a, a commemoration to the moon god. Remember, God placed Israel at the crossroads of the trade 
uh, in the ancient world that they would be an influence to other countries. But here what we see is the women have been influenced instead of influencing. And they're wearing and looking the way the pagan nations do around them, putting their faith and their trust in their material possessions. And we like to think, oh, we're so far beyond that. But whether it is the material possessions, whether it is the collection of experiences, whether it is simply the idolatry we have in Bernie, Texas, of children, family, success, and wealth, whether whatever it is, whatever form of idolatry, they carry it around with them, they are proud about this, and God confronts it by taking it away. God will take away that which we depend on that we would only depend on Him. Does it hurt? Absolutely. The more you're dependent on something else, the more you place your faith and hope in something else other than God, the more it will hurt. And so He takes away those things. And there is a a wonderful redemptive language here. In the condemnation of verse 24, you see this, instead of perfume, there will be rottenness, instead of a belt, a rope, instead of well-set hair, baldness. Now, the rope and the baldness, these may indicate again the exile that was coming because the rope, well, I can't find my belt, so I'm going to use a rope. Well, it might be the rope of captivity or being led out into exile. The baldness could be a result of nutritional deficiency from a siege-type warfare that was used against Jerusalem and the lack of nutrition and food that people would have. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, the mourning of those who have died in battle, and branding instead of beauty, branding in the ancient world, in other words, to mark out a slave or a captive, to burn into them a symbol so that they could be identified. So that language, which is condemnatory, points us to a passage we've already covered in Isaiah. You remember the first sermon in Isaiah for our series was from Isaiah 61. And we started there, we started our sermon series in Isaiah 61, because that's where Jesus starts, in the synagogue. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he goes to Isaiah 61, and he says, today scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And you hear this instead type language in Isaiah 61, verse 7. And Isaiah 61, 7 undoes and speaks to a reversal of Isaiah 3, 24. Now, these two passages are far apart, aren't they? And that's why I want to encourage you, when you read Isaiah, try to read it in big chunks. Part of the issue and problem with our Bible reading is it's in such small sections that you can't remember the beginning of Isaiah when you're finishing Isaiah. So it's hard to make a connection like this between Isaiah 61.7 in Isaiah 3.24. But look at Isaiah 61.7. You get the instead language. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. 
And the everlasting joy of Isaiah 61.7 comes against the sackcloth, the skirt of sackcloth, and what's taking place here in Isaiah 3.24. So God takes away the finery. He takes it away. We get dependent on it. Let me show off to you. You know, I'm going to use a bad word in, in Texas. Ostentatious. You can't, you can't spell ostentatious without Austin, by the way. But this is how they are. And God says, I'm going to take it away. I'm going to take it away, motivated from love, that you would turn back to me. Now, we all have had our finery taken away uh, before. Uh, let me recall February 2021, Snowvid. You remember that? Some people go camping voluntarily. Some of us go involuntarily. And you remember how your life shrunk down. I'm still jealous of you who didn't lose power. Your life shrinks down to food, warmth, water. Food, warmth, water. And our life shrunk down to that. And for at least a couple days after that, once the crisis abated, we were thankful for food, water, and warmth. When finery gets taken away, that is an opportunity for us to reject what our world treasures, to humble ourselves before God, and to remember that He uh, gives us all good things. And so we might have the response when the finery gets taken away to be bitter towards God or to be bitter towards life or to be resentful that the things that we worked hard for have been taken away from us. But I want to tell you that that's the best opportunity for us. Instead of to reject what God's doing is to run to Him and to turn back to Him in repentance and humility, realizing our own vanity and our foolishness, and returning to Him. And so God will come out and fight against our pride. How does He do this? I've showed you two ways. Two ways here in this passage. He strikes and He lays bare, and then He takes away our Finery. So sometimes our greatest moments of loss, when we lose the finery, those moments of loss are our greatest opportunity to come back to God and to draw near to Him. And the result of having our pride assaulted by God, it makes us desperate for God. And that's my final point this morning. It makes us desperate for God. Look in here in verse 25. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. I mean, this is a picture of how the Assyrians would come, the Babylonians would come, they would do battle, and they would strike down not just the men, but the mighty men. So when we depend on the mighty men, they can fall in battle. And then here in verse 26, her gates, now we're talking about Zion, her gates, because the gates represent part of the city for the whole city. 
So it's part for the whole. Her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. You didn't sit on the ground in the ancient world. The ground was dirty. So it's this humble, humble uh, disgrace that has been brought upon them because of their pride. And then we get in verse 1 of chapter 4. Seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread, wear our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Take away our disgrace. You see how desperate they are. And I want to offer you this. This is actually a point of repentance. It can be read as a point of turning and repentance. Now, back in the ancient day, I didn't make the rules. Back in the ancient day, a man would pay a dowry to marry a woman. He would pay a bride price to the family in order to marry her. And what you have here is you have the reversal. The man, instead of providing for the woman, the women are so desperate, they're going to practice polygamy here. One man, seven to one is the ratio. Why is it that bad? Go, go back to verse 25. Your men shall fall by the sword, your mighty men in battle. There aren't enough men left to marry. This is the desperate situation that they're in because of their pride. And they're saying, we'll eat our own bread. We'll wear our own clothes. All the finery, which it's implied the men provided to them, all of that is gone. They don't care about that anymore. They've changed, and they just want to be called by your name. They want to be part of God's people. And they make this request here at the end, take away our reproach. Take away our disgrace. <clears throat> and that desire to take away that disgrace is one of repentance. They have pursued life in this prideful, materialistic, idolatrous way. They have thought much of themselves, and they have thought little of God, and He has come out to redeem them from that. And so they, they say, take away our, our reproach, take away our disgrace. How does that disgrace get taken away? Well, you got to come back next week for the exciting conclusion. <laughs> Chapter 4, verse 2, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. The, the remnant of Israel will be rescued by the branch. Who is the branch? The Messiah, Jesus Christ, is the branch. He is the one who will take on the disgrace. He is the one that will humble himself. And he is the one who will take away their reproach and their disgrace. That's where the hope is in this passage, that our pride is not enough to cause God to reject us. But he will come out and he will strike and lay bare that we would come back to him, that we would be called by his name, Isaiah 4.1, that he would take away our disgrace, that we would return to him. And, you know, being part of a church, the Lord, you know, as I, I thought through this passage, I remember Genesis 
32, Jacob wrestling uh, with God. And you remember what happens. Jacob wrestles with God as daybreak is approaching. What happens? A little touch. A little touch of the hip. And how we remember that in the midst of our pride, and perhaps everything is going well in our life, we start to think much about ourselves and what does God do? Touches our hip, dislocates it for a purpose. Is it painful? Absolutely. But he does it because he loves us. And he's motivated not to let us go. And he gives us every reason to be desperate for him, to call out to him, and to come back to him in repentance, to let the desperation and the pain of our dislocated hip drive us back to God instead of away, to let it drive us to repentance, to let that desperation drive us as well to each other. I mean, this is part of what it means to walk together in a church community like this one. When God touches our hip, we have each other to walk with, not to solve it, not to fix it. Only God can do that, but to point the way to believing faith in God that even in our most desperate moments, He is drawing us to Himself. That's the tenacity of redemption. That God is not stopped by our pride. That he continues the refining project. He is determined to do that for his own glory and for our good. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, in those moments when what we hold dear is taken away from us. In those moments, we are plunged into the crucible and refining fire. In those times, you strike us and lay us bare and take away our finery. In those times, you take away what we depend on. In those times, we think much of ourselves and much about ourselves. Meet us there. Would the branch come to us yet again? And would we see it as, would we see our Savior as beautiful and glorious? And would you call us back to you and let us in experiencing the tenacity of your redemption, may we know your love that much better. And so when we're desperate for you, when you touch our hips, so to speak, we pray we would return to you. We pray you would humble us, and we pray you would be very forceful with us, that you would always and forever occupy the first place in our life. And we pray, give us the strength to see this happen as you're at work in our life, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.